Um, I come before you this morning to proclaim Jesus. Jesus, who is a friend of sinners, powerful, full of grace and truth, a servant to all. And we're going to see here this morning Jesus as the cornerstone, but also a powerful message that Jesus is essential to salvation, and he is exclusive. There is no other way to salvation except through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So I'm following on this morning with um, where we left off last week in Acts chapter 3, which is a following uh, the healing of a lame man from birth, a man over 40 years of age, a man who was begging for many years at the gate right outside of the temple. And Peter and John are going into the temple at the time of prayer to pray. And there at the gate of the temple, they heal this man in the name of Jesus Christ, that he is raised up and made to walk, and he goes about rejoicing and praising God. The miracle is not in and of itself, not for its own end. The end of it is that they might preach Christ and call these people to repentance. And we see that as Peter is preaching, that many thousands more come to salvation through believing in Jesus Christ. And so what we're going to see today is the aftermath of this second sermon recorded of Peter here in the book of Acts, and it leads into a trial of them before the Sanhedrin. So I'd ask you to turn with me this morning to Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22, and then stand with me this morning to honor the Lord as we read his word. Acts chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. As they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came to them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming Jesus and the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed. And the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had seen them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel but that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated common men, they were astonished and they recognized that they had been with Jesus but seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they conferred with one another, saying, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. We cannot deny it. But in order 
that it may spread no further among the people. Let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. So they called them and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge for we cannot speak of what we have for we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man who, on whom this sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. May the Lord bless the reading of his word. Please be seated. <clears throat> So Peter and John preaching outside of the temple, Peter is not supposed to be the spiritual leader of the, of the people. The people inside this temple, these notable people that are getting ready to form this council, some of them, they're supposed to be the spiritual leaders of the people. And the, the thing that is said of them here at the beginning is that they are greatly annoyed by Peter. Peter is like a fly flying around that won't go away. And he keeps annoying them by teaching the people. And thousands of them are coming and responding and being changed and coming to understand who Christ Jesus is. And they do not like this. And they want it to stop. This whole thing is about them trying to stop the preaching and teaching of the gospel by Peter and John. And so there's four parts to the sermon this morning. The first is persistent opposition. We're going to see this opposition to the gospel gathering together again. And there's a whole cast of characters here this morning related to this opposition. The first is the captain of the temple guard. It says that when they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, so the captain of the temple, what is this? This was the next highest ranking priest just under the high priest was called the, the temple captain or the guard. He's sort of the, the military police for the, for the temple. This is not, a, by the way, an Old Testament biblical position. This is a position that was put together during later times to have a policing of the temple so that they could control it. There's also the priests themselves there. And the priests are those who function the sacrificial system and the daily tasks of the temple. And then there are the Sadducees. So the Sadducees were a theological group or sect that cut across various uh, parts of the, the Jewish culture. So you could have a, a Sadducee priest or a Sadducee uh, leader in, in various ways. There were the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Sadducees were those who did not believe that there would be a general resurrection. There were many other things that the Sadducees represented, but they specifically represented not uh, believing in the resurrection, uh, a general resurrection in the last days. The Pharisees did. They believed in a general resurrection. But what's being proclaimed here is that Jesus Christ has, in fact, resurrected from the dead. So not something theoretical that we're arguing about. They're proclaiming that this has, in fact, happened, and that Jesus Christ, as the scriptures proclaim him as the firstborn from the dead, or the first to rise from the dead, never ever to die again, that resurrection is not something theoretical, but real. And so the Sadducees are a part of those who arrest them because they are proclaiming the exact opposite thing that they are proclaiming. And they leave them in jail overnight. But verse 4 is powerful. Even though they are hauled off and jailed, many thousands more believe. 
It says that the group of men, which is not including women and children, as you could probably double this number, has reached 5,000. So we're looking at somewhere in the 10,000 range of people that have come to believe in Jesus Christ so quickly. We've gone from just a few chapters and a few weeks ago of 120 people to thousands and thousands of people. And this is important to see, that the gospel is changing people's lives in a rapid and significant way, that no matter what happened to the preachers, there are many that believe that Jesus was who he said he was, which was the Son of God and the Savior of the world. Well, the next day, a council is put together because they're going to do their best to put away with these two men and their preaching. So the next day, the Sanhedrin is gathered together. The Sanhedrin is the ruling council of the Jews of that day. As it says here, there are the rulers and the elders and the scribes and the high priests. The rulers are the civic officers. They represent the civic power of the day. Elders, those of societal standing or the, the heritage standing. The scribes those that are the most learned, the academics that are going to, to be able to answer the tough questions. And then there's the high priestly family. There's Ananias and Caiaphas and John and Alexander. Ananias and Caiaphas, Ananias is the father-in-law of Caiaphas, and they are serving in the high priestly role. Uh, Ananias served from AD 6 to AD 15, Caiaphas from AD 18 to AD 36, but Apparently, they're still both here, and they both are still sharing a degree of power. And it's important to understand what is going on here. In verse 7, it says, they put Peter and John in their midst. What you have here is a, a half-moon circle amphitheater-style gathering where they're putting the people that are accused in their midst, literally, so that everyone is looking at them and they're put in the most intimidating place possible. Because what is happening is they're trying to accuse them, intimidate them, befuddle them, threaten them, and ultimately overpower them and get them to stop doing what they're doing by bringing all the most powerful people of the capital city to bear to crush them in this place. It is very important to the, the, the context of this passage to realize that this is the exact same place and Sanhedrin that had just accused and sent Jesus to his death some weeks before this. It's the same group of people. If we look back in Matthew chapter 26, 14, which is uh, some of the passages, I'm going to read some of the passages that speak about the high priests. The high priests are named in this passage, Ananias and Caiaphas, the exact same two characters that are involved with paying Judas and then paying the, the guards to keep their mouths shut about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They know exactly what is happening and they know exactly what they are trying to accomplish, which is to retain their position of material and, and otherwise powerful influence over the people for their own good. In Matthew chapter 26, verse 14, um, it says this. This is about Judas. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, what will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. In Luke chapter 22, uh, 3 through 6, Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. 
And he went away and conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of the crowd. When Satan entered into Judas Iscariot to, to affect his actions, he directed him where? To these people. These people were evil. And this is, there's nothing about this trial that is some type of an unbiased hearing. The point of this hearing is to get rid of and destroy these people, if, if necessary, by death. In Matthew chapter 28, we find that these same people were the ones who paid off the guards so that they would not tell about the resurrection of Jesus. Matthew 28, while they were going, behold, some of the guard went into the city and told the chief priests all that had taken place. And when they had assembled with the elders, this council, taken counsel, they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers and said, tell the people, his disciples came by night and stole him away while we were asleep. And if this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So they took the money and did as they were directed. And this story has been spread among the Jews to this day. It is this same group of people that as Peter was speaking to the crowds in the sermon that Jenner spoke to you about last week in chapter 3, he says in verses, this is Acts chapter 3, verses 14 and 15, but you denied the holy and righteous one and asked for a murderer to be granted to you, and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. This is the counsel of people that Peter and John stand before at this point in time. This is an intimidating situation, and they start out of the gate, by what authority have you done this? They start out with an accusatory question to see what is happening. If you put yourself, and I think it's important when we read the scriptures, to think about what would we have done in a situation like this? How would you react to being in a place like this? I don't know if any of you have ever been in anything remotely close to this with a group of powerful people surrounding you and actively accusing you in order to intimidate you and threaten you. Do not underestimate how scary a situation like this would be. And not too many years ago, these people were throwing nets into the water and fishing. That was their living. Not public speaking. They were not powerful rhetoricians or anything like this. But the, the difference in this situation is the second part of the sermon, which is the power of the Holy Spirit. It says in verse 8, Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, This man who has nothing in and of himself stands up and is filled with the Holy Spirit. He is directly strengthened by God in the time of need to say what needs to be said in a powerful and eloquent way, a way that is recorded for us in Scripture now that we might see how the Lord worked in that time in the hearts of these people. And we need to understand that this is a direct fulfillment of the words of Jesus Christ who said that this would happen. If we look at Luke chapter 12, in Luke chapter 12, verses 11 and 12, Jesus said this to his disciples. And when they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. 
And so this is exactly what Jesus said would happen to them, is happening to them. And in their great moment of need, the Holy Spirit fills Peter and strengthens him and gives him courage. Courage is a virtue. It's a virtue that is always in short supply. It has always been in short supply no matter what day and age. And it's certainly in short supply in our day. There are many times in your life as a Christian where you know, you feel led of God's spirit to say something or do something, and you know you should act. And that is the time when it is right for you to pray, God help me, fill me with your spirit, give me the strength that I need to do what I need to do. It's something that I pray all the time. I pray every Sunday before I get up here. I am not sufficient to do what God has called me to do in this pulpit to minister to you. God, help me and fill me with your spirit to be able to do what I feel like I ought to do. And when you come to that place, you ought to ask for God's strength in your life as well. God, help me to do what I need to do. Have the courage to say what I know that I ought to say. And in an effective and clear way, the way that Peter communicates here is powerful, it's clear, it's such a a thing that is beyond him that those that are listening say, what just happened here? This guy is an uneducated, common person. Here we are, the, the grandest people of the day, and we could not have just done what he did. And they don't know what to do about it because there's something of the Lord that's in it. It's something that honors God, not honors does not honor yourself. The filling of the Holy Spirit will empower you to act and do such things that bring glory to God. It is beyond yourself and it is beyond your natural abilities. In this hour, the need for a more powerful preaching and confrontation, that's what was needed at this moment and that's what God's Spirit gives Peter the strength to do. So the question was, by what authority have you done these things? Peter is filled by God's Spirit, and he begins to preach to them. And what he tells them unquestionably is that the authority by which these things were done is the name of Jesus Christ, who has risen from the dead, the Son of God, he who is the cornerstone in in whom only is salvation. He speaks of Jesus' essential and exclusive nature. We're going to spend the rest of our time this morning talking about these two things because they're really, really important. It says in verse 11, Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. This speaks to the essential nature of Jesus in salvation. And then verse 12, this famous, beautiful verse. If you have a paper Bible, it should be underlined in your Bible. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. This is the exclusive nature of salvation, that we can only be saved through Jesus Christ. Let's look first at the essential nature of Jesus as the cornerstone. A cornerstone is the defining or the essential block of a building. It begins the building in a stone building. And if it is out of level or if it is deficient and cracked in some way, it's going to cause the the whole structure to be out of balance. It must be right. And if a cornerstone, the beginning stone of the building, is defective, it needs to be rejected and another stone brought in. And so what we have in this passage is the idea of Jesus being rejected 
as an insufficient cornerstone, that he is not good enough. And so they're going to bring in some other foundation for salvation. But what we have to see about this passage is that this is not a new idea. This is basically the third round in the scriptures from the Old Testament to the Gospels, now in the book of Acts, of the Messiah and then of Jesus being spoken of as the cornerstone. It begins in Psalm 118, 22 through 23, where the psalmist first writes, The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing. It is marvelous in our eyes. At that point, no one was exactly clear who the cornerstone was going to be until Jesus made application of this, Psalm 118, to himself in his ministry as he preached and spoke by parables to the people. In Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all three of the Gospels, Jesus tells a parable called the parable, which we title, the parable of the wicked tenants. And in this parable, you have a, a, a master going away and leaving a vineyard in the care of stewards. And the stewards do a terrible job, and the master sends back servant after servant after servant to check in on these people in his vineyard. And every time a, a servant is sent, they mistreat the servant or kill the servant or abuse the servant. And it's meant to speak of the prophets and the way in which the Lord sent prophets to the people of Israel in the Old Testament, and they always disrespected them and treated them poorly, even killed them. And finally, the master sends his beloved son back to the vineyard to check on the people. And they plot together to kill the son and take the vineyard for themselves. And Jesus is very clear that the application of this is himself. He is the beloved son sent back to the people. And yet they hate him and they kill him. And he quotes this passage. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. So this passage is brought to bear in the, the context of people rejecting Jesus and hating him and saying this cornerstone, this foundation for faith is not good enough. We don't want him. We want something else as the foundation of our faith. And Jesus spoke it to the unbelieving in his time, and now Peter is speaking it to the hard-hearted council, the hard-hearted Sanhedrin of his time, saying that you have rejected Jesus, the cornerstone, but he will be raised up by the Lord. The Lord's doing will cause him to be the cornerstone, the foundation of all of our faith. And so by quoting this and bringing this back in again, he is proclaiming to them their rejection of Jesus and their hard-heartedness toward him and that they will not believe in him as essential to their faith. Jesus is the cornerstone. He is the Messiah. Jesus is the beloved son. And this council of people were the wicked ones who had rejected his coming and they will perish in their judgment because of their rejection of Jesus Christ. And so it will be with every person that bases their life on something else other than Jesus. What it means for Jesus to be the cornerstone of your life is, is really very simple. It means what we've just sung. Jesus, only Jesus. That if someone asks you, what is the essential component of your life? What is it that makes you who you are? Without question and without delay, you say, Jesus. Jesus is everything to me. He is the foundation of my life and my hope for the future. He is my Savior. 
And every single thing of your life somehow falls back down to Jesus. And if it were not for him, I would be lost and I would be overwhelmed and, and I could not stand on my own. I could definitely not stand before God on the last day if it were not for the grace and forgiveness of Jesus Christ. Jesus is essential. In verse 12, we see Jesus as exclusive also. Not only is he essential, he is exclusive. There is salvation in no one else. Jesus was divine. He was perfectly righteous. He was full of grace and truth, fulfilling the law and the prophets. He was our substitute. He perfectly met the justice of God, and he perfectly expressed the love of God. Jesus Christ is the only Savior. He is the only person through which we might have peace with God. That is a very, very powerful and controversial claim for our day and age. It's really for every day and age, but especially in our very pluralistic society where constantly, you know, anything that you want to believe or anything that you want to do is fine. To come in and say that there is only one way in which we can have peace with God through Jesus Christ is a statement that is hated by this world. I'm going to go through some things here, but before we do that, I just want to remind you that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The message of the gospel is good news, not bad news. The exclusivity of it drives us to Jesus, but in Jesus, we find a Savior of great compassion and love with open arms, who is ready to hear us when we call out to him. But let's look at this claim and talk through it a little bit, because it's a very important thing to, to examine carefully. Who is adequate to accomplish our salvation before a holy and all-powerful God? We must realize that one day we will stand, not with a group of people, but alone before God. And we will have to answer for our life and the way in which we lived. And God is holy, and he is omnipotent and um, all-powerful in his nature. And it's a terrifying, should be a terrifying idea to stand before God. If you had to stand before a court even that knew everything that you had done and give explanation for your life, it would be scary because we all know we're sinners. But to stand before God is that much more terrifying. But I think the question for our day is more of not who is adequate for these things, but who cares? Because our day and age seems to have little care for the soul or things of the soul. People have no interest in what we're talking about today because it doesn't matter to them. They're more interested in getting out of here or whatever conversation you may be having with them about their soul to go back to whatever entertainment they have. We have, we have a culture that is entertaining itself to death. They would rather flip through their social media feed one more time to see what the latest gossip of the day is than to consider anything about the Lord or to set their heart upon the things of the Lord or rush off to the next football game, or whatever it may be that is a source of distracting entertainment to not think about the things of the soul or to think about the things of God. Or perhaps a person that says, I don't care about this because politics is what really counts. People that are really getting stuff done are the people that are in office and trying to fix the real problems of our day. I don't have any, I don't have any room or time for these spiritual things that don't matter. Or perhaps they're a materialist where they're 
fixation is gathering more of the power and the things of this world. And truly, they're, they're on the treadmill of work. And they don't get off that treadmill because they're greatly satisfied by staying on that treadmill. And it produces things that they love and they want. And they have no time for God. They don't care about these questions that we're talking about. Jesus spoke of this in the parable of the soils as the person whose love of God is choked out by the cares of the world. That's a big catch-all category, but the cares of the world cause them to just be distracted and not care about the things of the Lord Jesus. But Jesus' claim is that he is, in fact, the what used to be called the summum bonum, or the highest good that of all the things that we could consider in our life, that we could spend our time considering, that we could spend the efforts and the energies of our life pursuing, that pursuing and thinking after and serving and honoring and obeying Jesus Christ is in fact the greatest and the highest good. He called us and even commanded us to love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength that he is the driving passion of your life and that seeking after Jesus Christ is what it's all about. And Peter and John and the disciples and these early ones were all about this. Their hearts were passionate about Jesus and everything else took a second place to who he was. And they understood that Jesus' claims were exclusive when he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Well, what of all the moral people in the world? What of all the wise people in the world? What are we saying to these people? Are we saying that these people will not enter into the kingdom of God one day? Well, I think it's very important when you talk about all the moral and all the wise people in the world, you got to get down to something specific. Who are we talking about here? Who, who will be our exemplars of how it is that man can have peace with God? Should we go and look to the university? Uh, will we find there the most educated people? Are they the most righteous and godly people? Will they help us find peace with God? Don't kid yourself. If you go look at the university situation in our day and age, we most certainly do not find righteous and moral and God-fearing people. If you go to the university, you're not going to find help with finding peace with God. How about a doctor? We greatly uh, esteem doctors, as we should. We were helped by a whole crew of them last weekend in an amazing way. But if I had turned to that doctor who knows how to put a, a tube in a child's brain and asked them, can you tell me how to have peace with God? The person would have, like, ah, no, I have no idea. They, they treat the body, not the soul. Again, politicians, people that rule the world, do we look there for moral guidance and wisdom of how it is that we are to have peace with God. And I, I think that's almost laughable because we, we see all the turmoil and struggle that's always been there. How about the rich? The Lord Jesus warned us there how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven because of the competing affections of the heart for the things of this world versus the things of God. You can look all over the world and you say, well, what about all the, the moral and the wise people? Well, what about them? Where are they? Please tell me where all these wise, moral people that are so close to having peace with God, they're not there. It's a fallacy. Instead, what the scriptures say are true, that we're all sinners. And every one of us are in need of the grace of God. And when we look earnestly at our hearts, we know that we are sinners. What of the religious? 
What of those who have claims of being near to God through the religious systems that they have created? What of the, what of the Muslims, those who proclaim Jesus as a lesser prophet? And instead, we should have our hope in Muhammad, who speaks to us of the pillars of Islam and all the things that we should follow there and do. Or those who are Hindu and point us towards the countless lesser gods of Hinduism and the hope of reincarnation or things such as this. Or how about those who call themselves Mormons and talk to us of Jesus? But it's a fictional Jesus, a Jesus that they rewrote the book on, literally, to give us another version of Jesus, a, a totally different person but with the same name. Or those who put their hope in the system of Roman Catholicism. I want to be careful with that because I know there are many, probably many from that background in our midst. And I know that there are those who love Jesus that are in that church but there are also those in that church who put their hope in the lighting of candles and the swinging of incense and people in robes and all kinds of practices and rituals that have nothing to do with Jesus Christ and his grace and his salvation. These are all man-made religion, man-made rules that we feel like we can keep and put together. And if we keep many of these things, that it will somehow bring us closer to God. But when you say, Jesus, I don't want to turn from my sin, I reject your grace, and instead I am going to try to work my way into favor with the holy God, you are rejecting Jesus as your Savior, and you will never enter the kingdom of God. This was the message of Peter, and this is what I proclaim to you today. But what I want you to hear is not that it is bad news, but that it is the greatest news ever. And it is why I am standing up here before you today. I don't know if you've ever had the chance to lead someone to salvation in Jesus, but I hope you will one day. And I'm going to walk you through it right here because it's a beautiful thing. Jesus does not call for us to work for him. He wants us to turn away from our sins and to believe in him. And by grace and free grace only, every man, woman, and child can come to salvation. They can put their trust in Jesus and be forgiven of their sins by grace and by grace alone. When you have the opportunity to speak to someone about their soul, if you are a Christian, you know what it means to come to salvation. And I again believe that probably every Christian here has been in a situation where you had someone in front of you that you knew you felt compelled to say something to them about the gospel, but it scared you to death, and so you didn't say anything. And I want to take us back to the second point of this sermon, the power of the Holy Spirit. That's when you ask God, God, help me to say something to this person about Jesus. Because it's scary to talk to a person about their soul. Because talking to a person about their soul begins with confronting them with their sin and telling them you're a sinner and you have to repent of your sins. And that is not an easy thing to do. But by the Spirit and the power of God, the Lord can help you to talk to a person about their sin in a way that will be effective, that it will convict them of their sin, and you don't come to them in pride because you also are a sinner, but you come to them with the hope of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And at some point in that conversation, you will see and be able to discern that this person is under the conviction of their sin. Please, 
don't walk away from a conversation with a person feeling the great weight of their sin and don't offer the free grace of Jesus to them. I can't imagine that. It'd be better that you didn't say anything to them at all than to leave them under the weight and guilt of their sin without speaking to them of the grace of God. But that's when you ask them this basic question, are you ready to confess your sins and believe in Jesus Christ? When you ask a person that question, you have no idea what they're going to say. And people have heard all kinds of answers to that question. People know I'm just, I, I'm not ready for whatever reason. And you cannot press someone into the kingdom of God. You ask them if you can pray for them, and usually they will say yes. And then it, you wait for another day. But then there will be those that say, yes, I'm ready to believe in Jesus Christ. And you need to be prepared for that moment as to what you're going to do and what you're going to say. So here's what you do. You ask this person, you say, it's time for you to confess your sins. And we're going to kneel down right here wherever we are. Or if the person's not with you, tell them, you've got to go find a place to kneel down. If you're talking on the phone, call me back when you can find a place where you're alone and you can get down on your knees. And then what you do, because you're helping this person, a person that's never prayed in a real way to God before, you're helping them come to salvation. And you ask them, you tell them, excuse me, it's time for you to confess your sins in your own words. I want you to confess your sins to Jesus Christ and ask him to forgive you. And then you just shut your mouth and wait. And what will happen next will blow you away as a person pours out the guilt of their life and the sins that have been burdening them for so long and their tears are on the ground and you have no idea what's going to come out of that person's mouth as they confess their sins to God and then ask God to forgive them and they realize for the first time ever that they are forgiven, that their guilt is left at the cross with Jesus Christ. And the next step is for you to tell them it's now in your own words, bow your head and express your faith. Tell Jesus Christ that you believe in him as the son of God and then shut your mouth and let that person pray because what's happening is God's spirit will help them to pray in a way that you can't. You're directing them. You're telling them truth. You're helping them understand what it is to come to Christ. And the beautiful things that people will say as they express in their own words to believe in Jesus Christ as their Savior. And then lastly, together you pray and thank God for what he's done to bring a person to salvation. This is what it means to come to salvation. This is not super difficult so why doesn't everyone do this? There, I'm sure someone here today that's never put your faith and trust in Jesus, if it's this simple, why doesn't everyone do this? Well, because these simple words and these simple things represent the absolute change of the heart. You are expressing that I am no longer who I once was. I am a different person. My affections have changed. These simple words are expressing what God has done in your heart and that you are now dramatically a different person, that you are not who you once were and that you are casting your hope on the mercy of Jesus Christ and in all humility, you are submitting yourself to Jesus. That you bring nothing to the table. It's not about, I did this for you, God, and I did that for you, God, and once you accept all these things, but I come to you with nothing, and I ask you, by grace and grace alone, to forgive me of my sins. And you receive this, and you have new life in Christ. This is what it means to be born again. And this is what it means to help another person believe in Jesus Christ. This is the good news of the gospel. 
It is essential and it is exclusive, but it is all of grace and it is offered to us through Christ who accomplished these things on the cross and through the resurrection of the dead. Let's pray together.